What were the names of the astronauts who landed on the moon in Apollo 12? Don't look it up on Wikipedia. Really think about it for a second. Hmm. Unless you're a space nerd like me, you probably actually don't know. We know names like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin as they were first. Their accomplishments are living on in history books and commemorative tchotchkes. And while you don't know the second crew that landed on the moon, you've probably heard of Jim Lavelle and the crew of the successful failure of Apollo 13, as he so dubbed it. But what about your kids or your kids' kids? Will they know these individuals? No, they're probably going to know Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and maybe Richard Branson because they're doing space even better than we were able to do nearly 50 years ago. Now, similar to space missions, in B2B SaaS, it doesn't always matter who is first to do something. It matters who does it best, who pushes the limit, and who is top of mind for that innovation. And on top of that, just because you're not first doesn't mean you've lost. The best way to win is to be the best for your target. You can't be the first social media platform but you could be the first social media platform for dogs. Now, I'm not saying that's a great idea, but maybe for that niche, it's an amazing idea. And someone who exudes this philosophy is Paul Lynch, who just recently left his position as CEO of Chargerfy. Chargerfy wasn't the first revenue management tool at all, but they did lead the pack in niching down to B2B SaaS. Paul is an immensely talented individual who has a lot to offer, and all of this information filled an interview we conducted in 2019, and the goodies are all coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Paul Lynch dives deep on operating. We talk about going smaller to get bigger, the consumer always being pursuant of value, the open secret to success, Amelia Earhart's role in category creation, and the need to sacrifice to specialize. Chargeify is a subscription billing company in revenue management. So we would dedicate all our workflows specifically to B2B SaaS. So with the other providers like Zora or Chargebee that you know Patrick has mentioned, they'd be more general around, you know, you buy an Apple for a dollar, you sell it for two, you know, they'll they'll create the billing engine for that. We would specialize specifically around SaaS and within the SaaS world and B2B. That's cool. And when you think about that specialization, like why is that important, right? So the folks you mentioned haven't necessarily specialized, right? And your specialization of Chargerify wasn't, you know, it wasn't always that way, right? So like what, yep. what led to that decision? Why is it important? What success have you seen so far? That type of stuff. So we're a huge believer in going smaller to get bigger. There's riches and niches. Um, you look at billing is a competitive landscape. It always has been. We have in Zora a category king that's come out. It dominated the market. It, it coined the term the subscription economy. For us to be successful, we feel I, I don't want to be Avis to Hertz. I think in the era of category design and the speed of business cycles we have today, you're better off owning something smaller than trying to compete on a larger scale. Capital will flow to the category king. Labor will flow to the category king. You only need to look at the really disruptive companies around tech. And I'd still include businesses like AWS in this space. They're a category king. They own the whole hosting market today. Uh, I know Google Cloud and IBM and Azure are making are, are growing, but Amazon is, is pulling away from them. They grew 34% last quarter to $25.4 billion. Uber is, there's Uber and Lyft over at Rideshare, who's in third place. 
Um, so we'd rather own our own smaller category, which is B2B SaaS. We'd rather be brilliant at that and focus everything on that than try to compete in a larger category and be insignificant against other players. And then ultimately through free market economics, we're, we're going to see market position deprecate anyway. So let's, let's own B2B SaaS. Let's focus entirely on that. We do churn alerts. We do growth alerts. We do sales commission calculators for B2B SaaS companies. All our workflows and all our product roadmap is around this. Again, it's sort of, it's, it's a good segue. Like, I feel that billing, uh, it's a really interesting space right now. And it's interesting because mentality of consumers is changing and it's ready to be disrupted. Zora's had it their own way too long in terms of being the dominant player at the top. The consumer is far more discerning now and they're getting far more educated about what they should be paying uh, for any individual good. And they're, they're moving towards, like, what's my value? They want utility-based pricing. They want to pay for what they've consumed. Most billing companies, and a lot of companies aren't delivering that. So a, a, a great example here, if I can, is you look at AT&T and you look at CPS, CPS being the largest power provider in Texas. You get 300 minutes, so many texts, so much um, uh, gigs of data on your plan from AT&T, and it's $50, okay? If you don't use your 300 minutes, you know, they don't give you your money back. You still pay the $50. Their utility is only to their benefit. You go above the 300 minutes, and then you're paying a penalty, yeah? So how is this okay? You, you then look at CPS. You, you have $251 of, of costs on your bill that month. If they turned around to you and said, don't worry about it, Patrick, we're just going to round you up to 300 you'd be like, no way. So they're both utility, but one of them is rounding up and offering uh, low value, and the other one is offering high value. So where we feel and where the disruption is going to happen around billing is going to be around usage-based billing or specifically what we call event-based billing. So tell me more about a, what is the difference? Or, or I guess that you said those are similar things, but what, so when you think about trying to unpack this, because you got the category aspect and then you're going to do event-based billing, where's the innovation there? What does the innovation mean? Why can, you know, I mean, obviously other folks could do this, but why is that like the bet versus kind of the, the breadth that like Azora has done, these types of companies? Yeah, so whenever there's a tech disruption or whenever there's a disruption in any industry or any market, there's always going to be winners and there's going to be losers. We're in the middle of this disruption right now, okay? So this disruption as we move to value-based pricing around pricing specifically on events, it's happening right now, and we can already see the winners, okay? Amazon Web Services, their servers weren't any faster than Rackspace's. You know, their, their CPU wasn't any better. They won because they made their billing method, their business model. They won because they have complex multi-point pricing schemes that do it on event. CPU cycles, API calls, everything else. Let's look at Datadog. Datadog is a pure events-based billing engine. Spotify. Spotify, you're paying per streams, you know, and there are two sides to Spotify. Yes, there is a subscription side, but if you look at the artist side of Spotify, which is the B2B component, the artist is remunerated through Spotify on streams, those being specific events. Yeah, most of the major Splunk, E-Trade, most of the major businesses that are coming out today are already using event-based billing and they're winning in all their markets because they're delivering value back to the consumer. The consumer is sick of being ripped off and having stuff rounded up. Pay simply for what you're consuming down to a single event. But isn't there, isn't there like to kind of push back or clarify there, when you think about, 
a technical buyer of AWS. They're willing to kind of take every toggle, every widget, figure out exactly what usage is and, and perfection. You look at like a marketing or a sales buyer, they need predictability or procurement wants predictability. They don't want to pay per event, these types of things. Now, I, I'll admit there's that's softening over time where they're more than happy to have it. But isn't there a dissonance factor where I'm like, hold on a second, I just don't understand how much I'm paying for. Just let, give me a limit that I can stick to or move me up a tier rather than pure event-based building. I see your point, and I'll give you a great example. Before I was in the software world, I had a hosting company. We were very successful. We grew to being the largest hosting company in Ireland. Uh, and Amazon Web Services entered the market, and we said exactly what you said. These are enterprises, they want predictability, they want budgeting, you know, so we would go out and say, you don't want to be with Amazon Web Services. I mean, can't go back to your CFO. And we, Amazon don't even know what your bill is going to be next month. How wrong were we? <laughs> they ran away with the market. Turning around and saying the consumer is too stupid to figure this out. I mean, that is the death knell of any kind of argument. The consumer is, promise you, in terms of 25 years of businesses, there's two things I know. One, the consumer is not stupid, and two, the consumer is not rational. And the moment you start feeling that either of those things exist, that's the day your business starts to fail. The difficulty is not around like the consumer understanding where the value lies. The consumer wants to pay the $251 to CPS and not have his bill rounded up to 300. The consumer is always in pursuant of value. Like, there was pushbacks around this. So, like, if you look at the evolution of billing, God, I'm talking about billing so much. Um, I mean, we started off from a software perspective with enterprise software that we would deploy on hardware. Oracle would come in, you'd give them a million dollars for the software keys, you give a million dollars to IBM for the kit, and then they'd disappear off for three years and come back and we'd do the dance again, you know? We then went to, um, you know, we then went to feature-based and subscription-based billing, and then when Amazon Web Services entered the market, we made these arguments around, you know, budgeting, predictability, all these things that are needed, and when we lost those, when Amazon Web Services, like, their growth has been so phenomenal, we then said, okay... Fair enough, I get you. So th this will work from an event-based billing perspective, but you're never going to IPO this business. Without a proof of earnings report, the SEC will never take your filing, and you're never going to be able to do a forward valuation around EBITDA or AOR, and you're never going to list. But no one told Twilio that. They've had an extremely successful IPO, and they are 100% event-based yeah. around text messages sent. I feel like most of your examples, though, are still dev products or tech products, right? So, so this, is, the, is this... the onus on... Because I could see, like, I'm thinking about, like, advertising markets, those sell to, to an, like, but more analytical-focused marketers. Like, think about HubSpot, right? Like, could HubSpot charge on a per-contact basis? Do you think we can get to a world where it's like, oh, we're going to pay $0.10 cents per additional contact at our HubSpot account? And what, what needs to exist for that world to essentially bridge the gap from, you know, this pseudo-event-based building or this bundled building, essentially, versus the event-based building? Do I think that that's going to be the case? I 100% know that that's going to be the case. This entire market is going to move into value-based pricing. Everything. I mean, yes. Who are the market leaders? Who are the disruptors as far as this is concerned? It's the business to developers. You know, there's another B2C, you know, a particular tool right now. Yes, the, like, is it going to be more difficult for HubSpot to change their models? Perhaps. But somebody's going to disrupt this and they're going to come in and they'll come in at a way lower price. Because that's, what, that's what's going to happen here. And this will be the tech disruption and they'll deliver that value. So it will, it will drive out as the adoption goes up through the business to developer side. It will go strong into B2B. We've done a lot of work around this on a, at, a, at an analyst level. 
So right now, about 28% of all SaaS businesses use a component of event or usage-based billing within their companies. By 2021, Forrester feel this is going to be up to 72%. So the, the market's moving in this direction. We've just gone onto the Forrester wave. Uh, the key scoring that they gave us was all around event and usage-based billing. So they feel the market's going to move this way. We've gone out to our customers. We've spoken to a lot of them. We believe strongly in customer validation. And everyone has come back to us and said, we're super keen on this. So that's yeah. the answer to the first part. The answer to the second part, why is no one doing this? You know, why, I'm, why are we so clever, right? The short answer is it's really, really hard, okay? The reason why Rackspace was a $4 billion business when they got disrupted by Amazon Web Services. I work with a lot of these guys, and they are very, very bright. Why weren't they able to quickly pivot this and move in that direction? Uh, and, and the reason is quite simple. It's so hard. Getting into multi-point event-based pricing, multiple different CPU cycles, data moved, it's super hard. Okay? It's hard for a number of factors, but one of the key areas is around data ingestion points. So to answer what's the difference between event-based billing and usage-based billing, we do usage-based billing today. We do it for some of the largest, some of the largest developers in the world, companies. And we do it through, say, email sent with one of our, our partners. So we use, they use a third-party tool as a metering tool they pull those events out of the data lake from those events they then um, th those events are, are batched and we they send them to us and then we create the billing record for us to be able to ingest that amount of data real time we're unable to do this because we are a billing platform we are not an events management tool but that's where the difficulty lies so what are you going to do to bridge the gap we're looking very deeply in terms of how we manage ingestion around our platform and that's what we'll build is it okay just to basically put the onus on the user to do the data lake then put that into chargeify then chargeify to process or to basically you know go and process the payment like how do you think about that so i mean their their data is going to flow through into the platform i mean you're making a delineation between the data lake and the billing engine they will effectively become the same thing they will be joined to the hip when you look at this it starts getting super interesting, dude. If the data lake is the billing engine that we can do what-if predictive pricing analysis, we can say, okay, last month we did half a million dollars MRR around subscription-based billing. What would have happened if I had to build that on API calls? And you're like, well, what if? Because we have access to the data lake already in the pricing plans. We can overlay this, Patrick. And we can say, okay, we would have built out 650000 And we said, okay, what if we did it on SMS to send? We say, okay, we would have built out 200000 That'll be a terrible idea, but let's move this to API calls. The predictive analysis sort of stuff around, the analytics and the predictive analysis around this, when you control the data lake, it's incredible. It's extremely powerful. Why are you doing this? Why not be a farmer, firefighter, doctor? Why, why, why this over anything else? Why are so, we talking about billing and data lakes? Well, I'm a terrible singer. Um, all, all, everything I've ever grown no Johnny in Johnny Jump Up, nothing everything like that. Everything I've no? ever grown in a garden has died. I'm a serial sales guy. You know me. I'm not a. I didn't come through a product or engineering world. You know, I started off down and dirty, dining for dollars. International calls with a company here in Dublin called ESA Telecom. We were very lucky to get that business exited to uh, to, to British Telecom. I knocked around comms for years. I like came into an early stage hosting company. As an investor, we successfully grew that. I've had a lot of SaaS startups and exits. Chargeify for me is, you know, there's, there's, there's four or five SaaS businesses in the world that I'd be interested in leading. It's one of them. I think it has exponential potential because I've, when people say to me as a leader or as a CEO or anything in life, you know, what's the biggest challenge you face? I'll always say, 
biggest challenge in business is selling in a declining economy, selling in a declining marketplace. SaaS is exploding. We're an underlying fintech tool in a market that's exploding. If we just show up, Woody Allen said it, you know, I mean, why are you such a successful actor? He said 80% of success is just showing up. Every time there was a casting call, every time there was an audition, I was there. I never missed one. So like when you're in an, in an exploding economy, just by showing up, is going to like give you a semblance of success. Then when you start optimizing, then it starts to get really interesting. And then you start growing businesses at 40, 60% year on year growth. Then you move across the 10 million um, chasm quickly. This business, I mean, we, we, it's owned 100% by Scaleworks Venture Equity. They're a venture equity fund out of San Antonio, Texas. We haven't raised $100 million. We run all our business on sensible business practices around profitability and reinvestment. Yes, right now on Chargeify, we're, we're burning a small amount of money month on month. We'll extend it out because we see a market opportunity here that is, again, practically unquantifiable. 15 years ago, we had Salesforce. Today, there's like 40,000 um, SaaS companies. The footfall in this place was incredible. I mean, the king of Ireland, Bono, said a couple of years ago at Web Summit that, you know, startups are the new rock bands. So you had four companies that you said you'd want to lead, SaaS companies. What are the other three? <laughs> I just try and flipping numbers out. Don't put me on the spot oh, like that. Okay. But... Is there one you can tell us? I just want to do this so Ed is like, oh, no, I got to keep Paul happy because then he wants to go lead that company. <laughs> I think if I look at any of the businesses that are moving towards event-based stuff, okay, these, like there's, as I said, there's always winners and there's always losers in disrupted markets. Any of these guys, like Datadog, fabulous business you know even circle ci i mean it's 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 now doing you know bill minutes in terms of its its models we have a, any of these guys that are able to take this kind of disruption into the market they're the guys that i'd be tracking as i said like i mean ubiquity and hosting it was so ubiquitous i mean i i i bought a gl a dl380 g6 hp server you know patrick you bought one we sold the same server to the same client base. It pretty much came down to the guile of the sales guy. And then Amazon came in and they set the world on fire. They walked in. I mean, I was at Web Hosting Day in Chicago in 2007 when they announced, you know, what they were going to do. So we slagged them. We were like, why are Amazon here? <laughs> I mean, they're going to get on the stage and try to sell us books. I tell you, we weren't laughing. When he stood on that stage and said, this is what our server usage looks like in December. This is what it looks like in January. We're going to use hypervisors to cut these into virtual images and sell them to your customers. And you're all going to go bankrupt. Like we sold our business on the back of it. We knew we couldn't compete because this was way too disruptive in what had become a ubiquitous kind of market. So who would I leave? Any of the guys that, that can see this level of disruption around events offer real value-based pricing into a discerning, intelligent consumer base. Was it truly like you saw that presentation and were like, screw it, we're out? Was there it were, that? Because normally there's the like, no, we're going to fix it because this is bad and no one will like that. It was blah, just blah, blah, blah. so obvious. Yeah. It was just so obvious. I mean, this new technology had arrived, which was VMware. It was, it, was, it was such an obvious disruption to the market. And then they had a sunk cost in a, in a Amazon's never really returned any, any profitability, but in a high growth, successful company, uh, we knew they could market. We knew they were bright guys. They put evangelists all over the world. They knocked everyone out. When you think about these markets, so you mentioned before, like Zora is like an investment leader, uh, tons and tons, like they train the market like a lot. If you're entering a market like that, like let's say you want to build the new Uber or new something like that, <laughs> is it, because there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing, right? Because technically you were in that market, you know, with Zora, and then you're like, nope, we're going to go over here. Like, thank you. You're going to help us. We're going to draft off you a little bit, but we're going to go really specific in terms of niche. 
Is that something that you would recommend if there's an investment leader entering into that market and going in a niche? Like, how do you think strategically about this for, you know, making it useful for everyone? For Uber, if you're competing with Uber, do you just shut down because you're just out of it? Or do you, like, find that niche? You need to find a niche. Like, I mean, a great example I use here is, you know, who was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic? Charles Lindbergh. Came one of the most famous men in the world. Who was the second person? No one knows. Who was the third person? No one knows. Who was the fourth person? Amelia Earhart. Everybody knows. That's a new category. So she's, she changed. The category is no longer flying solo across the Atlantic. The category becomes the first female to fly solo across the Atlantic. So there's always going to be, in free market economics, there's always going to be new entrants coming in, in, into markets. For me, like, I mean, if, if would I go to war with, with, when the category king has emerged, in rideshare it's Uber, okay? There's only room for two. There's Coca-Cola, there's Pepsi. Number three is RC Cola in the world of cola. Who here has drank RC Cola? It, yeah, well, Patrick, probably because it's a well, Boston thing. No, my grandparents, <laughs> like, basically had RC. That's basically it, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I mean, is there room for, you know, is it like, it used to be that you would have a dominant player coming to the top of the market um, around business cycles. Free market economics would create competition. Like, I made a career, like, taking bites out of IBM, taking bites out of HP, taking bites out of Rackspace even though I work with the guys today, you know, it's changing. I mean, when you, like in Rideshare, these guys are, Uber are getting the capital, they're getting the labor. You look at social media. When, when, when Facebook really sort of went stellar, everyone assumed that social media would probably have some kind of localization where there would be a, like a social media platform for like different states, social media platforms for different European countries. Nobody assumed that there would be one social media company in the world, and it would be Facebook. It became the category king. It hired all the best minds and labor around this area. It got all the capital. It continues to grow. Would you, like, would you set up a social media company now to compete against Facebook? No, you'd be insane. But when you think about, so this is an interesting question. I don't know if it has a true answer. Those, those secondary categories, is that created by the market or is that created by an entrepreneur making a choice? So it's created by an entrepreneur making a choice. And that, the entrepreneur needs to free himself of two huge impediments within his mind cycle. Okay? He needs to free himself from what his product is and he needs to free himself from what his people can do. And it's only when you can, can step away from that that you can redesign your category. And I'll give you a great example. You need to look at the market. Where is the white space? You know, right now, I have a social media company. I'm doing $10 million. It's okay. Oh, my God, Facebook are here, right? I got to figure something else that I can do. So we had this with Assembler. So prior to Chargeify, I CEO'd a business called Assembler. Assembler was a pretty significant subversion code repository business back in the day if you were a coder. They'd, the Git had entered the market. They disrupted like hell. GitHub and GitLab hadn't emerged as category kings, but the founder sort of got a bit frightened. Uh, he decided he would move into a collaboration and project management as well. And uh, he did that. When we bought the business, it was flat. We said, okay, through our naive optimism, we said, we're better than everyone else. And we're better than the former founder. So we can just run it better and get this business growing. We were wrong. We looked at the, we said, we fix everything in this. People will come. The consumer is rational. No one came, of course. You know, we said, you know, let's just compete against Jira. It's the, it's the category king here. Let's take bites out of it like we used to do at IBM. They got 900 developers or something. They're an $80 billion market cap business through Atlassian. We failed drastically. You know, so we then sat down and we said, okay, what can we do? We said, okay, we can do collaboration and project management. And also we can do subversion code repository management. So we looked at that and said, okay, that's, that's interesting. What does the market look like? And we discovered that all the narrative in this market was towards developers. No one was talking about code source 
to the CEO, to the CIO, right? And about this time, we started seeing gross and giant data breaches in places like Equifax, Samsung, Uber, okay? So we, we, we built a really strong security wraparound around the code repository systems. Uh, we moved into what we called enterprise cloud version control, secure code management in the cloud. Within weeks, we had like businesses ringing us, like Bose Hamilton, HBO, we signed Qualcomm. The business got into growth, you know, 18 months before we sold Assembler, me, Lou, and Ed sat down with a bottle of whiskey and discussed how we would make this business an EBITDA business. 18 months later, we sold it because we redesigned our category. We moved away from where we were sort of limited around the product. We moved into a white space, which was security in the cloud for code bases, and we returned seven times our investors' capital. That's cool. Uh, just a couple of last questions we ask everybody. What's something you struggled with in your career that you overcame? And, and how did you overcome it? Being Irish. Being Irish? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm only joking. That's probably the greatest benefit that That's I've ever had in my career. That's the greatest asset you've I've had a really lucky career. Pass. I mean, I like a, a, uh, what have I struggled with my career? You even Look, think I, about personally. I don't something come, you struggled with? I, well, like, I don't come from a technical background. So when you're leading quite sophisticated and technical business to developer tools, it can be tough. I overcame it by hiring really trusted people into technology roles and making them leaders. So, I mean, if I turn around to any of my coding team and they say it takes like seven weeks, uh, I look to my right. And the guy says, nah, three weeks. I guess I overcame being non-technical as a CEO of technical businesses. Yeah, or just thinking you could figure it out yourself, too. I mean, just hiring the right people, I think, is huge. I'm not bright enough, and I don't work hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> Things you want to hear, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's cool. What's next for Chargerify? We'll continue down this path. We're like, we've already we've found a really successful category, and we're beginning to really dominate in it. This is B2B SaaS. Um, our roadmap is super exciting. This disruption, it will happen. You know, you were here at Grand Zero. We're you th yeah, and when you think about that, like actually, follow-up question actually, when you sit down and you go, cool, we were in, what would you say, subscription management? Was that the previous category? Subscription uh, economy? Well, I mean, gener or? general billing as opposed to billing for B2B SaaS. General billing. Now we're B2B SaAS billing. We're B2B SaaS billing. When someone comes to you and says, okay, we're looking at you and we're looking at, let's just say Zora because they're yeah. not here, right? What do you say? Like, oh, that's cool, but they're not exactly B2B SaaS? Like, is that the way to look at it? So this is the law of sacrifice. If you want to specialize, you've got to sacrifice. Now, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, we'll give you a $20,000 a month contract, I have a board as well, guys. I mean, like, I report back into. Like, it's very difficult to turn around and say, if you use us, you will have a horrible experience. We don't have any of the integrations that you need. I'm not going to go back into borrow my VP of engineering, VP of product, rather, and tell him to build those because it's going to be at the detriment of my specialization in B2B SaaS. You know, it's when you free yourself of, of those kind of shackles, you understand the law of sacrifices for the benefit of the business as a whole. B2B SaaS is a $127 billion market. And it's growing. It's big enough to be successful in. I don't need to sell general bidding plans to people who sell oranges. Gotta sacrifice. What's your best advice to people who logically understand what you're saying and agree with you, but can't get over the emotional of like, oh no, but if I turn away that $20,000 a month customer, you know, that's, that's money I should go after. Like what's, it sounds like you learned this through experience, right? And maybe this is wisdom that you have to learn. You can't really be taught it. But but what's the advice to, to get I, that person over the emotions? I don't know how to succeed without without defining a category. I, I, I generally, I mean, uh, if you don't do that, then you're just running in circles. You're never going to go anywhere. There's no point in defining a category if you're not going to be true to it. Don't water it down, you know? 
I get it. I mean, bills need paid and everything else. Unless your team knows what they're doing, unless you have a common mission, and that mission shouldn't just be about sales, guys. The businesses that fail are the ones that aren't revenue focused, not the ones like they go out and they say, okay, we've hired a sales guy, now he's going to go out and sell. That's up the tick box. No, it's not how it works. The business has to be revenue focused. It needs to be sales focused as an entity. It needs to have a CEO that sits on the stage for like two days solid, <laughs> drinks Red Bull to keep going. That's what success looks like. And part of that is sacrifice. It's awesome. hard, but like it has to happen. A huge shout out to Paul for doing the pod. Now you have what it takes to operate a B2B SaaS business. Today, we talked about going smaller to get bigger, the consumer always being pursuant to value, the open secret to success, Amelia Earhart's role in category creation, and the need to sacrifice to specialize. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of the podcast or the equivalent wherever you're listening or watching. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing. And, you know, we like to appease those podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.